We read the word of God in Joshua 10. Now it came to pass, when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty." Wherefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah, king of Lachish, and unto Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, The king of Eglon gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly, and went out from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel, and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon, and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with a sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon. And thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled, and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered in defensed cities. 
And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so, and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass, when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near, and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterward Joshua smote them, and slew them, and hanged them on five trees, and they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass, at the time of the going down of the sun, that Joshua commanded, and they took them down off the trees, and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid, and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. That day Joshua took Makeda, and smote it with the edge of the sword, and the king thereof he utterly destroyed, them and all the souls that were therein, he let none remain, and he did to the king of Makeda, as he did unto the king of Jericho. And Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him unto Libna, and fought against Libna, and the Lord delivered it also, and the king thereof, into the hand of Israel. And he smote it with the edge of the sword, and all the souls that were therein, he let none remain in it, but did unto the king thereof, as he did unto the king of Jericho. We'll read the word of God this far. Our text is made up of verses 12 through 14. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Beloved saints in Jesus Christ, if I were to ask you what was the most amazing thing that happened that's recorded in our text, you might say the sun and the moon stood still and didn't go down for about a whole day. A day lasted two days. That's amazing. And it certainly is. But when the Holy Spirit sets forth the great event that happened this day, that's not what he says. He says, There was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. And so it's not only the great wonder that's recorded in the text, but it's also the means by which that wonder takes place that is instructive for you and for me. Israel, having traveled through the wilderness, has now crossed the Jordan River. Coming across the Jordan River, She has come first to the town of Jericho, and you remember how the Lord miraculously gave her the city of Jericho by marching around it once a day for seven days, and seven times on the seventh day, 
very unconventional warfare, but it was the Lord's means to give the city into the hand of Israel. And having captured Jericho, the Israelites control a narrow strip along the Jordan River, just a few miles wide, but a number of miles long, including a town eight miles north of Jericho called Gilgal, which they make the base of their operations. Then, from Jericho and Gilgal, they go westward into the land. And they capture Ai and Bethel. I won't tell the story. They are also recorded in Scripture. And battles which reminded Israel that the Lord would give them the promised land only in the way of obedience. And when at first they do not capture Ai, it's as a judgment on them because of Achan's sin. Now they control not only the little strip along the Jordan, but a narrow band into the land, but a band that separates the northern half and the southern half of the land. In other words, there's much fighting to do yet. The Gibeonites are from a city and a people that are stronger and mightier than those of Ai or Bethel, but they are afraid. They have seen and heard what this Jehovah has done, and they are not about to go to war against Israel. They trick the Israelites, bringing bread that's moldy and wearing clothes that appear to be very old and worn out. They convinced Joshua and the leaders that they also were traveling from a far country, that their clothes were brand new the day they left, that the bread was fresh out of the ovens the day they left, and therefore the Israelites ought to have some compassion on them and view them as kindred. And without asking at the mouth of the Lord, Joshua and the Israelites make an alliance with a group of people, the Gibeonites, of whom they were not, to have made an alliance. And yet the Lord has a saving purpose in this. There are the many kings of the south. The battle from a human viewpoint could go on and on and on for a long time. But the Lord says, it isn't going to be such a long time. The dominion of the five kings of the south is going to be broken quickly, For I'm going to move them now to make war against Gibeon. And in making war against Gibeon, bring the Israelites to fight and give the Israelites a great victory in which they begin to possess the entire southern half of the land. An amazing occasion for the Lord to work an amazing victory on behalf of His covenant people, Israel. So wonderful it is that it was recorded in the book Jeshur, the book of the righteous. Not an inspired book, but a book that Israel had, even at the time of David, in which notable events were written. But it is also written in that book that has inspired the Holy Scriptures, which we have before us this evening, and therefore to which text I call your attention under the theme, The Day That Lasted Two Days. This was, first of all, Jehovah's doing. Secondly, we'll notice Jehovah's means. And finally, Jehovah's purpose. 
the wonder of which the text speaks, is first of all, that the sun hasted not to go down in the midst of heaven about a whole day. When therefore the kings of the south came against the Gibeonites, they quickly sent messengers to Joshua and the Israelites who were camped about 20 miles away and over very hilly terrain. And Joshua and the army, having gotten the message, instead of saying to the Gibeonites, you tricked us, we'll get there when we get there. Meanwhile, put up your own defense. If the Lord judges you and destroys you, so be it. Instead of saying that, for the people of God are faithful to the promises they make, even when they are made rashly, Joshua and the Israelite army travel through the night. 20 miles as the crow flies, so longer, over hilly terrain, and by morning are ready to surprise the enemy. The enemy is not expected an overnight appearance for one thing. Then in addition, the enemy was more in number and was more skilled in battle than were the Israelites. So from every human viewpoint, this is Joshua going into a situation where all of Israel will quickly be swallowed up and destroyed and taken captive. And maybe more than one Israelite soldier thought that. They needed to hear, as does the church of Jesus Christ again and again, this word from Jehovah. Two words, just two words that we need to hear again and again. Fear not. Jehovah is in control. He knows what he is doing and how he is doing it. Then they saw Jehovah fight for Israel. For in the first place, the Lord discomfited that great enemy army. The word discomfited means that he threw the armies into confusion and turmoil. Specifically how and what the effect was we're not told. But other times when Jehovah did that, the armies began turning on themselves. They began fighting each other as though each other, the fellow soldier, was part of the enemy army. And he caused those armies to be completely inept and unable to fight against the Israelites. And in the second place, as the enemy armies were fleeing, the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Jehovah fights for Israel. Now the remnant of those armies are running, fleeing. And Joshua says to the Israelite army, pursue them. There are more men to kill. Let's kill them. And it's in that, at that moment, that he says to the sun, sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. You might initially get the impression that the day is drawing to a close that because Joshua wants to finish this work while there is daylight, before the sun sets, he gives the command. But the geography that the text gives leads us to a very opposite conclusion. Gibeon is to the east, Agilon is to the west. 
If therefore the sun is above Gibeon, and the moon over the valley of Agilon, then the sun is not yet to the full strength of noonday. It's in the morning that that Joshua gives this command. Realizing indeed that there is much to do, that the battle will be prolonged, he commands the sun and the moon to stand still. And during that day that lasted two days, everything that I read in Joshua 10 verses 1 through 30 takes place. I recognize that verse 15, immediately after our text, says that Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. But the point is not that they just had one momentary victory and back they went. The point is that when all was done, they returned. And then verse 16 goes on to describe what happened that day. The destruction of the five kings and of the people of Makeda and of the people of Libna. And in verse 31 and 32, we read of what happened the second day. The Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, which took it on the second day and smote it with the edge of the sword. In one long day that lasted Two days, the power of the kings of the south are destroyed. Now, this standing still of the sun and of the moon was Jehovah's doing. The text is clear on that. The Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. The Lord fought for Israel. And even if the text didn't say it in so many words, you know it. Who is it who created the sun and the moon? Who is it who commands the sun when to rise? The meteorologists tell us what time the sun will rise tomorrow. But what they have figured out from science doesn't factor in always the fact that the Lord commands the sun to rise. And the sun rises, commands the moon to rise and set, and the moon rises and sets. This is the Lord's doing. He holds the heavenly bodies in their courses and causes them to fulfill His will. And you know it too, because a busy mother that you might be, and wishing that the day be twice as long so you could get caught up with all of the laundry and the housework, and busy farmer that you might be, wishing that the day would last two days so that you could do more planting and more harvesting, you try commanding the sun once to stand still, and you recognize it won't. It is not in you, and it is not in me to do this. This is the Lord's doing. And yet, that's flatly denied by many today. And I don't mean many outright unbelievers, many who say I couldn't care about the Bible, it's got such strange things in it, but I mean even some who say I'm a Christian. I'll follow the teachings of Christ. I'll follow the example of Christ. But much of what's in the Bible, I just can't stomach. That the sun and the moon stand still for almost 24 hours? Some will say that's unscientific. The laws of gravity, the laws of physics, don't permit and allow for that. Some will say it's odd anyway because it isn't the sun that's moving, it's the earth that's moving around the sun. Well, we can grant that point. 
The Bible is not unscientific when it speaks of the sun rising and the sun setting. And nor are you and I when we go to Lake Michigan of a lovely summer evening and watch the sun set. Rather, we are understanding that the Lord who causes the earth to revolve around the sun put us on the earth, not on the sun. So that from our perspective and our vantage point, we see the movement of the sun. Nothing unscientific about this. Then there are others who will say this is unhistorical. It's too fanciful. And even this Joshua, as he wrote the story, is giving clues to his reader that you shouldn't really take him at face value. There was no day like it, before it, or after it. Which is his way of saying, we are told, that he's taking poetic license. That he's setting forth something so amazing, it was as if the day lasted two days. Or that he's saying, I know I'm exaggerating, but I'm doing it for effect. And all of those approaches are really a denial of what Jehovah did. Young people, young people maybe in high school, but especially out of high school, going to college, getting more worldly wise, not always in a good way perhaps, because you have professors with PhDs telling you something that maybe you've never heard before, throwing ideas out to you that you don't always know how to answer. Here is the fundamental basis and statement of your faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And when you say that, then you are ready to say also that if that Lord who made heaven and earth sees fit to cause the sun to hold its course and the moon to stay for the space of a whole day, he can do it. And you and I don't question whether he did it. And at the very foundation of our faith is an understanding of the divine inspiration of Scripture. This is not Joshua speaking for effect. This is not an Israelite saying, I've got to get this down and embellish it a little for the sake of the generations. This is Jehovah saying, this is what he did. That Jehovah did this is significant for three reasons. In the first place, it speaks of his power. Power over all creation. I believe in God the Father, Almighty. It's this power of Jehovah, this absolute control over all of creation, his ability to cause the sun and the moon to do what he wants it to do, that enables our Lord Jesus Christ later, when he is on the face of the earth, to command the winds and the waves, and they stop. The storm stops. They listen to him. He is the Lord of creation. This Jehovah who governs all things, all history, all the weather, is the Jehovah who in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, shows that he controls earth and all creation. And that matters to you and to me. 
The power that God exercises through Jesus Christ in upholding and governing all things reminds us of a great day when Jesus Christ comes again. And he will say to the stars, you may fall now. And to the sun, you may stop your shining. And to the moon, become black. And that will happen. Because he has the power to do it. Deny that Jehovah caused the sun and the moon to stand still for a whole day. And you are denying that Jehovah controls the courses of history and of the heavenly bodies and can bring their purposes to an end when it's his, ter- his day to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. What a glorious God we have, all powerful. In the second place, that Jehovah did this is significant because it speaks of his relationship to Israel, a covenant relationship Israel is his people. He causes the sun and the moon to stand still at the command of Joshua, the the leader of Israel, for the benefit of Israel. It's not the Canaanites who get the advantage. It's not the Egyptians. It's not the Philistines. It is the Israelites. He has a special bond with them. He has brought them out of the land of Egypt. He has formed them in Israel to be his own special people. He has protected, governed, guided them through the wilderness, even though he judged them for their sins. And he has now done what he's promised. He's given them the land of Canaan. He loves them. And that's why the story matters to you and to me, who are part of the New Testament Israel, the church of Jesus Christ who find in Old Testament history lessons about our salvation, about the love of Jehovah for us, lessons that are very precious, that we take to heart. And this lesson especially, if Jehovah used the sun and the moon to the advantage of Israel then, then he surely uses all creation for the salvation of his church in some marvelous way that I can't always comprehend. Thirdly, that Jehovah did this is significant because it speaks not only of his covenant relationship with Israel, but his love and mercy and grace. Now, unbelieving approaches to the Old Testament come to many Old Testament passages, this one included, and say, love, mercy, grace. I see bloodshed. I see an angry God. I see someone who's unfair. I see a God who's going to be moved with, 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 with anger against these Canaanites. What have they done? They're sitting in the land that they've lived in for hundreds of years. Love? Grace, mercy, that's the God of the New Testament. That's the God I want, not this God. But to the degree that there is indeed bloodshed, war, and justice, well, that's the God of the New Testament too. The God of the New Testament is not just a God of love, grace, and mercy as if no sinner will ever bear his wrath. When five kings are hanged on a tree, 
Jehovah is telling every sinner, this is either what you will get, the bearing of the curse of the wrath of God, or it's what you deserve and what Christ must endure for you. God, that is the New Testament God, is a God of justice. But notice the grace, the love, the mercy. Israel is not more worthy or deserving than these five kingdoms of southern Canaan. Israel is herself a sinful people, it may well be, that God has formed her to be His own. But He made clear to her, it wasn't because she was more in number, it wasn't because she was more righteous than any other nation. You know and I know that our standing before God is not on account of who we are, or anything about us. Indeed, if it were on account of who we are, or anything about us, we can only expect judgment. And that was true for Israel too. She's a sinful people. She's stubborn. She's rebellious. Yes, she's following the command of the Lord now. But there was an Achan just a few weeks earlier. And there were the many instances in the wilderness of murmuring, and of complaining, and of rebellion. And yet, Jehovah says, I love you, Israel. My covenant people, I'll be faithful to that promise. I will send another one to hang on a tree to redeem you from your iniquity. And to show you that I'm the loving, merciful, gracious, and always faithful covenant God. Here, I give you the land I promised you 400 plus years ago when I said to Abraham, your seed will be as the stars of the heaven and the sand by the seashore in multitude, and they will live in this land. Jehovah's doing. The means that Jehovah used were the words of Joshua. Sun, stand thou still, and thou move. These words were not a prayer. No man can pray to the sun or the moon. That's idolatry. And they very clearly are a command. But it, it is true that before Joshua did that, the text says, Then spake Joshua to the Lord, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still. In other words, many commentators say this must have been a prayer. But you can't take the words and make them a prayer. What you can do, however, is say that before he commanded the sun and the moon to stand still, he prayed. And there's another grammatically possible explanation of the words, Then spake Joshua to the Lord. It's not the way the King James translates it, but it's appropriate. It works with the Hebrew grammar. And that would be that then spake Joshua for the Lord, in the name of the Lord. And then the text doesn't so much speak of a prior prayer, but it still conveys the idea that when Joshua does this, he doesn't think he's just somebody. He can't walk around telling the sun and the moon what to do. He can only do what the Lord will do through him, and he understands that. Regardless of whether you see those first words, then spake Joshua to the Lord as a prayer, 
or as a recognition that he speaks in Jehovah's authority, that much must be clear. He is not a mere man. He is the leader of Israel. And yet, as the leader of Israel, he is human. And that's the striking thing that the text draws our attention to. There was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. Understand that there's a sense in which the Lord hears the voice of humans every day. When you pray, the Lord hears. The text isn't saying that the Lord doesn't hear, that it's so unusual for the Lord to listen to a man's plea or prayer and that the Lord would answer it but that a man commands the sun and the moon to stand still, and the Lord says, all right, I'll hold them in their course. That has not happened again. He used the instrumentality of a mere man. And that is instructive in a number of ways. In the first place, it tells us something about the place Joshua had as the leader of Israel. That was, or that is to say, an unquestioned place of leadership. By now, Israel had understood that in the wilderness, Moses had been their leader. Not all had liked it. But without question, it was Moses who was instrument of God to bring about the ten plagues. It was Moses who defended, or was the instrument of God for the defense of Israel in the land uh, in the wilderness, and who gave water from the rock, and by whom bread came from heaven, it was Moses. Not all liked it. Some hated Moses. They were envious of him, jealous. And now that he's gone, might be prone to say, we don't need a leader. We are all God's people. Let none of us exalt himself above the other so as to think that he is the one who speaks on God's behalf. And Jehovah says, as it were, in a passage like this, to that sort of mentality, don't you dare think that. The Lord always appoints leaders for his church. They are mere men. But don't dismiss them. Especially the work they do. Lightly, because through them, Jehovah works. And what he did now is something far beyond what Moses had ever done. So he drives the point home for the Israelites. Moses had done many great wonders after God told him what to do and how to do it. When the text says there was no day before it, like that before it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, It means to draw our attention to the fact that even Moses had not just said to the sun or the moon, stand still, and the Lord did it. But Moses' miracles came about when the Lord commanded him. The people must follow Joshua. They must honor Joshua. They must understand that Joshua is the typical mediator of the covenant And the picture of the New Testament Joshua, for the Old Testament Hebrew word Joshua, and the New Testament Greek word Jesus really mean the same thing. That first, and therefore in the second place, because there's typology here, because Joshua is a picture of Jesus, 
The text instructs us what God does for us through Jesus Christ. The Lord hearkens unto the voice of no other mere man before this or after it, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh, is the one by whom the Father governs all things. And that same Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father so that He can execute the Father's will, then comes to the Father in prayers and in supplications. He beseeches and He implores. He brings your needs and my needs and the needs of the church to Jehovah God. And the Lord hears Him. This is the amazing reality. That we consider that the one who is the head of the church and is also at the same time the Lord of creation, not because he has two different functions, two different jobs and tasks, but he is the Lord of creation in the service of the saving of the church. And therefore, Jesus Christ was involved in the work of creation. Jesus Christ is involved in the work of providence. Jesus Christ sends a thunderstorm and wind and waves at His pleasure in fulfilling the will of the Father. Never going independently of what the Father's will is, and yet doing so as God in the flesh. Not a mere man, but a man nonetheless for our salvation. The God who used hailstones for the destruction of the enemy and who threw the enemy army into turmoil is the God who through Jesus Christ also today sees fit to send a storm that kills perhaps a great enemy of the church who has schemes and plots regarding what he can do or she can do for the destruction of the church and who overthrows the plans and the purposes of Satan. And this Jesus Christ will come again to give you and me the promised land. How will he do that? He'll first remove the heavenly bodies, as I alluded to earlier. He'll burn the world with fire. He controls the weather and the phenomena that we call weather and meteorology with a view to our salvation. He is not now merely the means. I don't mean to leave it there. He is means, but He's not only means. He is the means of Jehovah for the saving of the church and governing of all things because He is the head of the covenant. This Joshua points us to him. Now, are you united to him by a true and living faith? Does his spirit dwell in you? Are you regenerated? Do you believe? Does he sanctify you? Then also you and I and the church are the means of Jehovah for the advancement of his covenant and cause And kingdom, I don't mean that in the sense of a kingdom building, culture enriching idea in which the church is is viewed as many view her today 
as something that will help Christianize the world. I don't mean it that way. For God's kingdom is not to be equated with this world. And yet, when you wake up in the morning, do you say, I don't know what it is that I'll do today, what the Lord has in store for me, but I'm going to go forth as the representative of Jesus Christ and of God, with his name in my heart, in my head, on my forehead. And I'm going to fight sin and the forces of sin. I can't tell the sun and the moon to stand still and expect they will. But Jehovah uses means. And where I see that there is in my life or the lives of my children and my family an area in which we need to grow, I will work toward it. And when I see that there is in the church of Jesus Christ a brother or a sister who is weak or hurting, I can address that person and by me, not by me only, but also by me, the Lord can give the brother or sister strength and encouragement. Do you go through life understanding that you have the anointing and authority of Jesus Christ to fight the spiritual battles of faith. The great event recorded in the text was not recorded as a great story in itself, but to remind us the Lord fought for Israel. And what were his purposes? Well, he really had one fundamental one, and that is to give Israel in one day a decisive and a complete victory. I say complete, it isn't that the job was finished. But in principle, the dominion of the kings of the south was broken, and Israel knew the Lord, having done this much for them in one day, will give them the rest of the land. Let's see how that works out in three ways. In the first place, the power of the kingdoms of the south are broken. The armies are diminished. Many men are killed by hail. Some are killed as the Israelites pursue. The five kings are put to death. The armies cannot quickly regroup. Even if there are warriors that get away and flee to the cities, all they can do there is take refuge behind stone walls and do their best to defend women and children of whom the Lord says, but they're not going to be defended. The power of the kings of the south is destroyed. Isn't that something akin to what Jehovah did to us and the church in the day of the death and resurrection of our Lord when he said, Satan... He's not cast into hell yet. He does have a measure of power yet, mark you, and beware, but he has no more dominion over you. His dominion is taken away. In the second place, the Canaanites are judged. Now we're going to come back to that point that some unbelievers find blameworthy of Jehovah God. And we're going to extol the justice of Jehovah here. They were a wicked people. It isn't that Israel was more worthy. 
But the Canaanites were a wicked people. They descended from Canaan, the son of Ham, for one thing. In the second place, they have filled up their cup of iniquity. Some of them did so very, very early on. I think of Sodom and Gomorrah as an instance. But now they all have. They've developed into different nations and, and subsections. But being sinners, and especially showing the height of their folly and unbelief, by working to destroy the people of God, they show themselves worthy of punishment. And they are punished. The kings are destroyed. Their bodies hanged as a sign of what Jehovah does to those whom he hates. There can't be then, for the Canaanites who remain alive, any hope. They are doomed. In the third place, Israel is assured that though the fighting must go on, Jehovah will give them, in the end, complete victory. This is the largest show of force that the Israelite armies have seen since coming out of Egypt. Five numerous kings, five kings and their numerous armies. And then using traditional warfare. And whereas Jericho fell after marching around it seven times on the seventh day, and Ai and Bethel were taken using more traditional warfare, but still in a marvelous way, the Lord is saying to Israel, now there comes a point when you're not going to give this, just have this just handed to you. You must fight. Look at these five kings. Look at their armies, and you're scared, aren't you? I'm going to destroy them in the main, so that you understand I will give them to you, every last one of them. But after I do these amazing works, get on with it, and fight the battles you're called to fight. Israel is assured that in relying upon Jehovah, she can. She will. Unskilled and untrained only serves to underscore that when she has the victory, it is still Jehovah's grace to her and his power in her, but he will give her that victory. And these points are pertinent for you and for me as we fight also the spiritual battles that the church must fight as a church, as families, and as individuals. In the first place, The battle, beloved, is real, and it goes on. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not the end of warfare. It is only the encouragement, and a great encouragement to the church, that the victory will be ours. But the battle goes on. Are you fighting? Are you fighting sin in your heart? Are you fighting unbelief in your heart? Are you fighting against the tide of culture? and of society against the unbelieving, hedonistic, and immoral life that's promoted in the world around us today? Are you saying that's sin? It's a giant army with five great kings at the head, and I must oppose and withstand it. Are you doing that? Captain of your host, then, secondly, is Jesus Christ. 
who fought, first of all, for us and the cross, but also fights in and through us. And there's our power, incentive, and strength. It isn't that the church will conquer because of numbers. It isn't that the church will conquer because of superior strategy. It isn't any of that. The church will conquer because Jesus Christ fights in and through us. The proof of it, when you need the reminder, goes back to Calvary. And the fact that there was a day, not that lasted two days, but one that was made dark at high noon. And the light of the sun cut off because the Lord Jesus Christ bore on your behalf and on mine the wrath of God for our sins. He did it not as an experiment. He did it as the one whom the Lord sent to redeem and reconcile the sinful church. He did it fully and completely. He did it crying out at the end, it is finished, and light returned. And then the third day he rose again from the dead. That Lord Jesus Christ will be victorious. He already is in principle. He fights in you and through you. Be on in the battle, beloved. And do not falter or be discouraged. And then thirdly and finally, in that fighting live in hope. There comes yet another day. Not a day that at high noon becomes dark, nor a day that will last only two days, but one great day where the sun shines. Well, there won't be a sun. The glory of the Lord will lighten that day and that kingdom. And it will not set, it will not become dark the day when we do at last have the victory, when we are at last in the heavenly Canaan. Live with your eye on that day. Why do Christians, soldiers in the cause of Christ, so often get discouraged and grow weary in battle? Because we take our eyes off the coming day and we look down and around at our earthly life, at what we wanted out of life, at what we're not getting out of life, and we've taken our eyes off the day that comes. We have a New Testament Joshua. He leads the way. He opens up heaven for us. Now, believing that, look ahead and fight the battles of faith in his strength. Amen. Father which art in heaven, not unto us, but unto thee give glory. Not in our strength do we fight, but in thine. And then if we've laid down the sword, if in fighting the battles we have not fought in a godly and a right way, forgive and re-equip and re-empower and re-motivate for Jesus' sake. Amen.